Welcome to another MHU Investors Club special report. We're going to be talking about the top 10 issues with high vacancy parks. I've had a very large number of deal reviews recently on parks that have a lot of vacancy. Now, what is a lot of vacancy? Well, typically, if you're just a little bit off the 80% stabilized occupancy threshold, I don't consider that big vacancy. So if you're at 70% occupancy, 75%, you're close enough to 80 that that's probably not going to be a big issue. But if you're more like 50% occupied, somewhere in that range, then that would be what I would consider definitely a high vacancy park. So I thought we should go over together the top 10 issues, the top 10 things you have to consider when you're looking at one of those parks that has lots of vacant lots. So the first item is stabilized occupancy because... As we all know, until you hit stabilized occupancy, which is roughly 80%, until that moment, you have virtually no liquidity. And that's because most banks won't make loans on parks that have greater than 20% vacancy. Now, some will go a little lower. Again, it's a guideline. Not all banks are are completely unhinged if you're at 79% as opposed to 80%. But if you've got 50% occupancy on a park, The first thing you have to worry about and ponder is the fact that until you get to roughly 80%, you're illiquid. That means you will not be able to probably sell the park or finance the park. You'll be stuck with it. So you have to just know that overarching issue. That's the big issue with parks that have very low occupancy is until you can get up to about 80% occupancy, you're faced with a complete lack of liquidity. And as we all know, the late, great Sam Zell, who who just died a few days ago, that was a big issue to him. A big item he always talked about was liquidity. And you're not going to have it if you have lots of vacancy. The second issue is how are you going to finance the park? Because if in the absence of stabilized occupancy, you won't really be looked on favorably with banks, then how are you going to get a loan on it? There are some banks out there that will make loans on parks with lower occupancy. Places like Security Mortgage Group can point you to some of them. But the problem is you will pay a higher interest rate and it's still hard to achieve. And again, I'm not talking about 80% as though it's a rigid number. There are banks out there who will all day long make loans on parks that are 70 or 75% occupied. But on a park with really extreme vacancy, one big initial issue is how are you going to finance it? Because it's going to scare off most of your lenders. And then on top of that, you have the issue that if you're going to get seller financing, and many times a seller will try and carry the paper to get the deal done, knowing the absence of liquidity, it's going to have to be a long carry, at least 10 years. You have to have plenty of time with that seller note to get up to stabilized occupancy. And then you have to season that for a few years to keep the bank happy. So if a seller says, well, I will carry my 50% vacant park for three years. No, that's not good enough. Three years is going to get you nowhere. Three years does not give you the time to get up to stabilization, nor the time to season that P&L. So if it's going to be a seller carry deal, it's got to be probably at least 10 years. Number three, can you obtain a credit source to floor plan the vacant lots? If you're looking at a park that you have to fill 40 vacant lots to get up to stabilized occupancy, then what's happening is you're going to probably have to come out of pocket $2.8 million at $70,000 per home in many cases, 
which clearly makes the deal not work. If you're buying that park for a million dollars and you have to bring in 2.8 million of homes to get the stabilization, you're never going to make sense of those figures. So instead, you have to have somebody who acts as the credit source, the most common 21st Mortgages Cash Program. Another option, Performance Equity Partner, known as PEP. But you have to have something, some way to do it. Now, if you're going to do it with new homes through either source, you're going to be able to get virtually 100% of the cost of bringing in the home financed on the front end. If it's a used home, you'll have to front the money, but then you're going to be able to sell the home to a customer that qualifies and get your money back, which you can then reuse again. But it's very, very hard to work on deals with high vacancy in the absence of a credit facility. So in your diligence, you've got to get with PEP and 21st's cash program to see if you qualify. If cash program says, nope, don't qualify, or if PEP says, well, we don't do that state, then what are you going to do? Because you have to have a credit facility. Next, what's your test ad demand at the full lot rate you're going to be charging and the correct home cost? What am I saying there? In other words, if you are going to be raising the rents to $500 a month from currently $300, and if your new home is going to come in at $65,000 and the payment on that home is going to be $500 a month, then your ad would have to show two and three bedroom mobile homes for sale or rent from $1,000 a month. You're cheating yourself if you go in with the low lot rent that it may currently have and or the low home price of maybe that $20,000 used home that's already in there. You have to figure out what is the correct and realistic lot and what is the correct and realistic home price. Add those two together and run your test ad based on that. And if you're going to try and get a low occupancy park to the stabilized occupancy arena, you'll have to have very strong test ad demand. Because remember that those test ads, they elicit calls from people, but you don't know their actual credit. You don't know how much they have for a down payment. So you have to have a very high volume to get those people who will actually qualify. So typically, you're going to want to see in that test ad at least probably in a 10-day run, 40, 50 calls or maybe higher to feel good enough about that market and its ability to get homes sold and out the door. Next, what do 1,000 square foot, not very nice single family homes go for in the market? We have found that is the biggest item we can use to rationalize why seventy dollars and $80,000 mobile homes sell in some markets and don't in others. And what we found is if the single family 1,000 square foot home, not nice, it can be pretty beat up. If those homes sell for $100,000 and up, then your mobile homes will sell fairly well. Because as long as you have a high price point, even on that 1,000 square foot junkie home, that's going to force many people into buying the mobile home. But if a 1,000 square foot junkie home sells for $50,000, it's very unlikely you're going to get $80,000 on your mobile home because the customer that wants to buy that mobile home can buy the stick belt for less money, a lower monthly payment, no lot rent, and let's all face it, almost all Americans would prefer the stick belt to the mobile home. So just make sure if you're going to go in there with those seventy dollars and $80,000 single wides, which is where most new homes will land, that you've got a market that will support that. And we have found the best item to give us the, the, the clue that we can get those homes sold is a 1,000-square-foot single-family home. You can go right on Realtor.com and look it up. 
that cost $100,000 and more. Number six, do you have private utilities and can they handle the higher usage to support higher occupancy? Typically, this is not a water issue. If you have a well, normally a good well can handle much greater occupancy. So rarely is the well the culprit. But if you have a park that has a packaging plant, does that packaging plant have the capability to process the sewage from more occupied lots? Even more dangerously, if you have a septic system, will the septics at full utilization, will the earth be able to leach and soak up the liquids? Pay careful attention to that. If you're on city water and city sewer, adding occupancy is a breeze as far as your ability to service those extra units with occupancy. But if you have private utilities, particularly private sewage, then getting to stabilized occupancy may bring forth a new issue, which is a failing sewer system. Next, will the city fight you on filling the lots? If you're going to fill a lot of lots, you're going to be talking to the city frequently, needing to get those homes as you bring them in green tagged. If you can't get the green tag, you can't use the home for occupancy, and therefore your, your whole program to hit stabilized occupancy is going to fail. So it's very important in a park that does not have stabilized occupancy that you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in your interaction with the city that they aren't going to fight you. You want them to give you a certificate of zoning that's clean, shows you're either legal conforming or legal non-conforming grandfather in status, you want them to acknowledge how many usable lots you have. You want to talk to the inspections department and tell them, I'm going to be bringing in homes to fill all those vacant lots. Do you have a problem with that? Make sure you understand the permitting process to fill those lots because this is an issue you want to ask permission rather than forgiveness. If you're buying a park that's at 85% occupancy, you're already at stabilization, then you could handle a little pushback from the city because you might not budget to ever get completely full, there might be some random lots that you would agree not to put a home on. But if you have to fill a lot of lots, you've got to make the sure the city is your ally and not your enemy in trying to get that accomplished. Number eight, who are the market's top 10 employers and are they predominantly healthcare, education, and or the government? Because if you have to sell a lot of homes, you have to have a lot of people who feel good enough about their jobs to sign on for a mortgage. You have to have enough employers to be attracting new people into that market. And let's face it, we're going into a national recession. If we're not in one right now, I, almost every economist believes we will be before the end of next year. And as we all know, in recessions, private employers typically pull back. They may do layoffs. They may close plants down. You don't want to be in a market with high vacancy where you have to get up to 80% stabilization and have to be fighting the economy, which suddenly, rather than being a good way to prop you up, is yanking you down. We always find healthcare, education, and or government employers to be the safest. That's what we found back in the 2007-2008 Great Recession. And it just makes complete sense. You want to be in industries that they can't just arbitrarily expand or detract them based on the economy. <clears throat> they still have to have hospitals, even when times are bad. People still send their kids to college, even when times are bad. And we all know the government never gives up. It's always expanding, never retracting, never laying off. Number nine, 
what's the risk versus reward ratio for the deal? <clears throat> As we talked about earlier, Sam Zell has a few axioms. He had a few axioms. One was his embrace of liquidity, but the other was looking at every deal from a risk versus reward standpoint with his old ultimatum that if it has low risk and high reward, you should always buy it. If it has high risk and low reward, you should never buy it. And the deals you should debate are ones which have high risk and high reward. Now, how do we come up with the, the figures to do that? Well, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to go to the end of the movie or what I call going to the end of the movie. If you got that park full or nearly full at your rents at full market using a reasonable cap rate, what's it worth versus what are you paying for it? And if the answer is, well, I'm going to be making a million dollars or $2 million, which is achievable in many of these high vacancy deals, then that may, may make the risk worthwhile. But if you're not going to make a giant significant sum from doing it, it's probably too much risk and not enough reward. Some sellers do not realize the amount of risk and effort and capital required to fill the lots. They try and brush it off as, oh, it's easy. No, it's not. If it was easy, they would have done it. They'll say things like, oh, well, I have a waiting list. No, they don't. If they did, the place would be full. The bottom line is that filling a lot of vacant lots is very scary, very risky, very capital intensive, and that's okay as long as it's very, very profitable. But make sure that the deal has enough profitability built in to make it worth that level of risk. And finally, number 10, what does the best case, worst case, realistic case look like? Now, that's one of my favorite lessons I do. I did it all the way back in the billboard business, did it in the mobile home business. I love doing that. It gives me peace and it makes me feel good. Like I have really understood where I stand in the universe. How do you do it? Well, your worst case would be if you don't get any of them full or just a few full. You bought the park at 50 occupied lots out of 90 and let's say you figure out, what if I could only ever get up to 10? What if I could only get to 60? What's the deal look like? On your worst case scenario, you're trying to see, can you handle the mortgage? Or will you be having to feed the property? Most people, I don't care if you're a millionaire or a billionaire, no one likes projects where there's negative cash flow. Nobody likes them. If you read about Pixar in its early days, losing money every quarter endlessly, everyone wants to drop out of Pixar even Steve Jobs for a while, because no one likes writing a check on an investment. They're okay if it has no dividends sometimes, but they don't want to be having to feed it. So your worst case is what happens if you don't hit your goal? Will you have to come out of pocket or can you at least cover the mortgage? Then you look at your best case scenario. That's going to the end of the movie. If you hit all of your numbers, if you get the park fully or near fully occupied at full market rents, how much money does the deal produce? Finally, you have the spot in between those two polar opposites, right smack in the middle between best and worst case, and that's realistic case. So what's the realistic case look like? If the answer is, it looks pretty darned attractive. If I hit my realistic case number, I'll make $100,000 a year. If I hit my realistic case number, I'll make a million dollars of profit. But since the realistic case is the most likely, right in the middle between best and worst, it's imperative that that be the number that still turns you on. Now, if we flip it around and you say, well, 
My worst case is negatively cash flowing. My best case is okay. My realistic case is not that exciting. Then don't buy that deal. That's not going to work for you. Any deal you're going to get involved in, you must have a survivable worst case, an incredibly ebullient best case, and a very satisfactory realistic case to get involved in it. So those are basically the top 10 issues with high vacancy parks. Now, there are lots of other issues. There's no doubt about that. But as long as you can focus on those 10, you'll get a lot greater visibility on if it's a deal you should get involved in or not. Now, we've done many high vacancy park deals over the years. You all have walked some with me. The deal that we bought, turned around and sold in Fort Wayne, Indiana, was the subject of an MHU live event not that long ago. We filled hundreds of lots in that 750 space, basically, city. And we've done other deals where we brought in huge number of homes. A big deal in Farmington, New Mexico, where we brought in over 100 homes. Another deal in Iowa that we brought in over 100 homes. So we're no strangers. We're not afraid of big fill projects. But at the same time, you only want to get involved in those when everything, when all the cards are in your favor. Right now, between the higher price of mobile homes and the fact we'll probably be going into a recession, which will cause banks to do more of a flight to quality, more than ever before, you have to give great consideration when you're looking at doing one of those high vacancy deals. It's a major undertaking, but yet it can be very, very profitable. Don't let anyone say that the whole point of this top 10 is to scare you off of doing high vacancy deals. That would be hypocritical because we made our bread and butter doing high vacancy deals. My first deal, Glenhaven, was half occupied when I bought it. All we're saying is only get involved in ones where the odds are in your favor. That's the key. Don't get involved in them unless you really think through each part of the program. You understand what the risks are. You understand what to watch out for. And if all of that points the correct way and you have the correct ratio of risk and reward and you've got a favorable best case, worst case, realistic case metrics, then high vacancy deals can in fact work well. As always, if you have any high vacancy deals, feel free to call and bounce them off me. I can typically point you in the right direction of different resources to try and help you evaluate them. And again, we're not knocking them. We do them. We've done them. We just want you to do them really well. This is Frank Roth, the MHU Investors Club, special report. Hope you enjoyed this. Talk to everyone again soon.